Hello everybody, this is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 48. We have an excellent guest as we always do. Carrie Gunter Seymour is here and she'll be joining us in just a moment. But before we begin, I should say Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry and unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do this because we love poetry. Like everything else that we do, all we ask that you do is click the like button or the heart or whatever else you can click on wherever you're watching this or listening to this. And uh, that really helps things spread around the world. If you're on iTunes, give us a rating too. We don't have all that many iTunes ratings. I want some more iTunes ratings. So if you're listening on iTunes, give us some stars. Um, now, the warm-up poem for today is going to be, I just clicked the random button as we usually do. And um, we got this poem by Lynn Thompson. And uh, Lynn was the guest on Rattlecast number two way back in August, like August 1st last year, the, first, the second episode. We had Ben Alshire, then we had uh, Lynn Thompson. She's a lawyer and a poet. Her most recent book is um, um, Fretwork, which is what we talked about then. This is from way back in 2005, our Tribute to Lawyer Poets issue, which was uh, the summer 2005 issue. And uh, excellent, excellent poems there by lawyers. Of course, lawyers are good with words. And um, this was Lynn Thompson's uh, entry into that um, into that issue. This is Lament. I am Implication. So here we go. Lament. I am Implication. An afterthought. Meat gone rancid. Anna Karenina in blue hose. Ephemerata. Every need I've declined to marry has failed me. Moonrise in the milk sops I would have loved every daughter who could have been my revenge. Surprises have never been much of a surprise and that has wrought thimbles of scandal. Also, wheelbarrows and Puccini, the Eucharist and television have all failed or been botched. It's getting on time and I can't find one schnauzer who will nuzzle his constant heart in my lap. Someone in Kansas plays a Stradivarian dirge, but even those wry notes are much too sweet. My pigment drips more than Pollux. My hard history has been sung. See the palimpsest of my body, its full-length chiaroscuro laying stranded, lovely, in its ruins. Once again, that was Lament. I Am Implication by Lynn Thompson. I think that's from her uh, first book, which I'm not remembering off the top of my head right now, but her newest book is Fretwork, so check that out. I love that line, every need I've declined to marry has failed me. I always think about that. I don't know exactly what it means, but I love it. It's one of those lines that just sticks with you over the years, over 15 years in this case. Now, um, today's guest is uh, Carrie Gunter Seymour. And we published her in Poets Respond back in 2014. She was actually the fourth poet we ever published in Poets Respond. And um, she's had an amazing month of success. She was named Ohio Poet of the Year for 2020 just now. And um, she was also named Ohio Poet Laureate over the last month. So um, congratulations, Carrie. Um, she's a ninth-generation Appalachian. Uh, her, uh, her work is firmly and unapologetically unapolog attached to her home soil and is an examination of the long-lasting effects of stereotype and false narratives surrounding native Appalachians. Her current collection is A Place So Deep Inside America It Can't Be Seen. She's the founder, executive director of the Women of Appalachia Project, 
an arts organization she created to address discrimination directed at women from the Appalachian region. You can find that at womenofappalachia.com. Um, she's also a retired instructor in the E.W. Scripps School of Journalism at Ohio University. And um, a poem she wrote in support of families living in poverty in Athens County, Ohio, went viral and has been seen by over 100,000 people, resulting in thousands of dollars donated to her local food pantry. Find more at carriegunterseymourpoet.com. That's Carrie with a K, K-A-R-I-G-U-N-T-E-R-S-E-Y-M-O-U-R, poet.com, if you could follow all that. If not, it's in the notes, of course, on the bottom of the podcast, wherever you're watching this. And uh, here she is, Carrie Gunter Seymour. Hey, Carrie, how are you doing today? Hey, Tim, I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. And first of all, <laughs> congratulations on, um, on an amazing month of... Um, of confirmation for all you've been doing over the last, you know, several years of, of working in poetry. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, do you want to start us out with a poem? Um, get the ball I'd rolling? love to. Sure. Okay. Um, so, uh, as you mentioned, my newest collection is called A Place So Deep Inside America It Can't Be Seen, so I'd like to read the anchor poem from that. Yeah, that's a great way, place to start, for sure. Yeah. Um, Oh, and what, what, what page is it on so oh, I can flip it? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I forgot 17. to remind you. 17. 17. Okay. Well, I know this. I don't know why. I'm misbehaving <laughs> already. Oh, it's hard. There's so much to try to remember. It's tough. <laughs> I had no alcohol tonight. I promise okay. you. <laughs> okay. I come from a place so deep inside America it can't be seen. White oaks thrash. Moonlight drifts the ceiling as if I'm underwater. Propane coils, warms my bones. Gone are the magics and all the songs. All the things our grandmothers buried, piles of feathers and angel bones, inscribed by all who came before. When I was 12, my cousins called me ugly, enough to make it last. Tonight, a celebrity on Oprah imagines a future where features can be removed and replaced on a whim. A moth presses wings thin as paper against my window, more beautiful than I could ever be. Ryegrass raise seedy heads beyond the bull thistle and preen. Everything alive aches for more. I love that ending. And, uh, and I love the title, too, which is something I, I mentioned last time, but that's just such a memorable title and such a great description of it. That, um, can you talk a little bit about what you mean by that? Like, why is it a place so deep inside America it can't be seen? Well, because um, I'm going to get into it now, if that's all right. Yeah, get you. into it. Yeah, okay. yeah let's do okay. it. Okay, okay. <laughs> so let's, let's, just, let's just talk about it. So today and for well over a century, Appalachians have been marginalized and stereotyped. And uh, it's affected, you know, multiple generations. And uh, it was intended uh, to dehumanize us and belittle us so that the U.S. coal companies could come in and, you know, extract the coal from our land. Uh, and they did. And at that time, uh, Appalachians were beginning to be characterized as barefoot, overfed, you know, uh, undergroomed, undereducated, you know, basically white trash. Um, and it's easier uh, for the coal companies to pull off the roofs that they're helping Appalachia rather than plundering Appalachia with all of that going on. Um, 
so just keep in mind, that's just the one story, right? Mm -hmm. That's just the one story about Appalachia. So then in the 1950s, uh, the coal industry collapsed. That was the mountaintop mining uh, and a lot of even the underground mining because they had just really mined the heck out of Appalachia. And so um, they just pulled out and Appalachia became this huge junkyard. Okay, so they... They just literally up and moved out, and a lot of the machinery they didn't need or was getting older or whatever, they simply left it in place, and they just simply took off no severance, no notice, really, and they left workers without jobs, okay? Um, so it's not like they could go back to farming because the land had all been ruined. It, there was no topsoil. There was just no way for anybody to go back to farming because everybody sort of knew how to do that, right? Okay, so um, needless to say, Appalachia fell into deep poverty at that time. And again, that's kind of where some of that story comes back in again about everybody being undergroomed and underfed and, you know, just not, not in a good way. So uh, in 1964, Lyndon Johnson decides to declare a war on poverty. And, of course, it was aimed at Appalachia. And a lot of that was due to some really beautiful photography done by people like Shelby Adams and uh, John Domininus and, um, in Life magazine. And so those photographs are what people think. That's the first thing that comes to someone's mind when they think about Appalachia. And, you know, that, that, whole, uh, that whole sort of uh, fabrication was uh, made up you know, by the coal companies. We have to keep that in mind. So um, when you think about the war on poverty, what that did is it provided programs to feed people, but nothing for um, for education. Uh, uh, really what all that it did was serve to uh, keep Appalachians from starving. But it, what it did do is remove all sense of, um, of pride or, or hope, you know, for the future. So that's the stereotype of the barefoot, poor, white hillbilly trailer trash is something that is familiar to most Americans. And it's a myth. And it conceals race and racism in Appalachia. And that's what I mean mm -hmm. when I say I live in a place so deep inside America it can't be seen. Because everybody keeps to, they keep wanting to look at that one story. They don't want to look at all the other stories. We are so complex. We have beautiful stories. We are beautiful people. Our roots are, are, are so deeply buried. We love the, our families. We love the land. We, um, we, we are honorable people, and that's very important to us to be honorable. And we look to our elders passed down over the generations. Okay. So um, can you repeat what you just said the last like sentence or two? Because it froze for a <laughs> <The> second. <last> <laughs> Okay, okay, I'll just kind of start with, I just hope people will look beyond that one mm -hmm. single story, because um, we are much more than that one story. Uh, there's much to be admired about us. We're tenacious, we're strong in spirit, we love family, we love the land, we're a very honorable people. That is so uh, important to us, to be honorable, and the very things that have sustained us for generations and those who came before us, lead, lending us their honor and their strength and their courage has helped us survive. 
And I would I would really suggest to people who want to find truly want to find out more about Appalachia and the and the stereotype, and uh, the marginalization to watch a documentary entitled Hillbilly, and that's a beautiful documentary, award winning I might add, many awards by Ashley York and Sally Rubin, and it is um, it is very eye opening and quite wonderful. But it, you know it's it's. Uh, like most documentaries, it can be a little difficult to watch, mm-hmm. but the truth is the truth, you yeah, know. So. Yeah. I was going to suggest two documentaries, actually, too. Harlan County, USA, about the, the strike mm-hmm. for the coal miners was such a, mm-hmm. just an amazing documentary. I think it won, yes. you know, I think maybe the Sundance, you know, or something like that, um, best documentary maybe 10 years ago. And then the other thing I watched, I don't really have much experience with Appalachia. I drove through one time. And that's about it on my way to Florida. Um, and, um, and I knew, I knew I had a, a friend actually that I worked with. Um, and the, the very top of Appalachia is the southern tier of New York. And a friend of mine, mm-hmm. um, um, I worked with him on a, on a landscaping crew for my summer job one year. He'd drive all the way up from the southern tier like two hours every day. And um, he was just such a character. I loved him. But um, the other thing I was going to say is uh, Anthony Bourdain's uh, Bourdain is his name. Anthony oh, Bourdain's yes, episode yes, yes. of Parts Unknown on Appalachia. Um, what an amazing! I mean, I I like had tears in my eyes watching that. It was an amazingly rich and nuanced look at the the culture there. So I recommend everybody watch those. We have three documentaries that were had you know uh, assignments to do. Um, yes. But this is probably Thank a good time to mention. Um, we're going to do a tribute issue to um, Appalachian poets. And uh, it's going to be next summer's issue. I just added it to Submittable. Um, and I'll put it up on screen really quick so people can see. But this is going to be the summer 2021 issue. Uh, issue number 72 of Rattle is going to be a tribute to Appalachian poets. Um, and like everything that we do, um, every, every uh, tribute theme, the idea is to just explore what poets from a certain region or with something in common are doing. And, um, and to sort of have an open-ended look at, at a certain cultural characteristic. And um, so anybody who's an Appalachian poet can submit. Um, please do, if anybody's watching now, that, that's, that's eligible. You just have to consider yourself an Appalachian poet, um, have lived there a certain length of time enough to you know, qualify and make sense, but we won't check your driver's license or anything. And, um, and then and send whatever you're sending, unpublished poems up to four. And the deadline's going to be January 15th, 2021 for that summer issue. So I'm really looking forward to that. It's an issue that we've been planning on doing for a long time. And so when you came on, it was t- the time of the year to pick this issue. And I figured it was a perfect timing to uh, do that, do that uh, issue. So I'm looking forward to that. Yay. And Tim, could I just mention, um, Appalachia isn't confined by its 420 counties because so many people migrated out Mm -hmm. starting with the end of the war and especially with the coal mines pulling out. Mm -hmm. So we've got pockets of Appalachians all over the country. Uh, So to say that you have to live in Appalachia, you might want to reconsider Oh, I didn't say it. You had to live there at some point, I think. Gotcha. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Or or your people. Or your people. Or your people. Yeah. Yeah, I guess we could we could say that too. Yeah. Yeah. If you really if you identify as something, that's all we care about. Um, We don't we don't check on your credentials to see if it's it's good enough. There's no line. It's just if you if you consider yourself Appalachian, you fit. Um, But you do have to sort of you know say because some people will get submissions honestly where people will say you know I lived there for a month once, (laughs) and like. And, and, you know, I have no other connection whatsoever, but here's a poem I wrote for the month that I lived in West Virginia. And then, uh, no, no. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Don't you think the work will kind of speak for itself? I think you're going to know. I think you're going to be, I think you're going to 
I think we're going to blow you away is what I think is going to happen. I think you're just going to be amazed. And I think you might have to double the size of rattle for that issue because you're going to pick so many beautiful poems. You're not going to be able to contain oh, it in the that's one. That's awesome. Well, I'm really looking forward to it. I can't wait. I definitely cannot. Um, yeah. Well, thanks so much for, for um, getting the ball rolling on this. I really appreciate it. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about what you do um, with the woman, uh, women, what is the organization called? I forget. Women of Appalachia Project. Women of Appalachia Project. Yeah. What is it that yes. you do with that? I would love to. Um, I'll give you a little bit of background. Um, obviously, I'm Appalachian, and um, I have been so lucky all my life. I mean, I literally, um, my life is kind of crazy. I, I can tell you a little bit about my people later, but um, I came stumbling out of a holler as a, um, trying to remember how old I was. I believe I was 33, uh, and ended up in Athens, Ohio. I didn't come that far, don't get me wrong. Um, and realized pretty quickly I needed to enroll in college, so I did, uh, with a lot of help from a lot of people. Um, and that doesn't happen very often to, to single mothers, single Appalachian mothers. And so a lot of people worked really hard to help me out. And when I graduated, um, I got a job right away, which was also very, very lucky. Um, but what surprised me was the way people made fun of me. Hmm. Uh, the way I talked, because I have a little bit of a twang now because I'm working real hard to get it back. But when I read my poems, you hear my real twang. Oh, and I, and I love it. It's, yeah. it's such a, there's yeah. such musicality to it. It's one of the things, the yeah. first time and, I heard you read, I thought, wow, that's beautiful. <laughs> well, and that's my people, because when I write, I do hear that. I hear that, in, you know, as I'm writing. Um, and then I started submitting, you know, I started writing poetry and, and doing some photography and submitting. And I was getting back these weird rejections, like trying too hard to be yeah. ethnic or a little, little on the colorful side or something like that, that indicated to me that they were just being a little bit, um, I don't know, picky. I don't know what the, the, what the word is. And maybe my stuff was just really bad. I mean, it could have been really bad, <laughs> but I decided I'm a, I'm a marketing communications person. I can organize an art show. I can organize a poetry reading. So I did. And I, I approached Ohio University, a woman named Chanu, uh, Winsome Chanu, and she's the director of the Multicultural Center. And I made a pitch that uh, Appalachian women are, uh, you know, a marginalized culture. And she agreed to try it once. And we had five fine artists and four poets. Um, we're entering the 12th year. We're now a 501c3 nonprofit. Um, we have trademark for the Women of Appalachia Project. We've had hundreds of women participate from throughout, oh gosh, I think 15 states now. Uh, every year we go... Uh, we go from uh, venues throughout Ohio, West Virginia, and Kentucky and read our work. And I also publish it in a, an anthology called Women Speak. And this is the fifth anthology that I've edited and published. And if anybody's interested, you can buy this from Mountain State Press. That's pretty easy to Google mm -hmm. to find it. Uh, 80, uh, uh, fine, there's fine art and there is spoken word inside this beautiful book it is a beautiful um, book i have to say yeah it it's is a great cover. it is a truly beautiful yeah thank you that's my design um but not my photograph so i have to give jessica malone uh you know the photo credit um but what we do what the whole point is is we're activists yes but we're non-confrontational we simply speak our work we hang our work in galleries and we allow those who see it or hear it to respond to it 
Um, and we are in academic settings. So we go to Berea, Kentucky. We go to Northern Kentucky University. We go to um, West Virginia University, Morgantown. Um, I'm going to forget a whole bunch of them. But anyway, we go roundabout. And so you'd be surprised, especially in academia, how little they know about Appalachia, even though they're living hmm. there. And so it's it's been really, really exciting. But the, the very best part of it is um, the sisterhood that has developed. I've never, ever felt less alone in my entire life than I do right now. And I've met the most amazing, amazing women and their families. And whenever one of us falls, there's there's 100 people to pick you up and dust you off and tell you, okay, you just start again. When you're ready, you start again. And we're all standing there with you. We practice with each other. We do all kinds of things just to lift each other up and make ourselves better. And we have all become better. And we've had, oh, my goodness, Prindy winners. Uh, many of us have been nominated for, for you know, for push carts. And uh, we have a, um, a Pulitzer Prize winning photographer who participates. I mean, this is, this is, a, this is a pretty big deal. You know, so so we're really proud of it. And it's, it's just a big old bunch of women who, who just care just care. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, that's wonderful. I'm so glad you could do that. I'm, I'm, I just, I cannot wait to read the submissions that come in for this issue coming up. Um, uh, do you want to read a couple more poems from, from either, whatever sure, you want to I'd do? Love yeah. to. I'd love to. I'll read another one from, uh, uh, you know, a place so deep. Mm -hmm. uh, this, this one's called Ruby May and it's on page 29. Mm -hmm. You let me know when yeah, you're ready. Ahead. Okay. Oh, I should tell you, I, I, I made some little notes here because I want to remember to tell you all these things. So in this little book, there's there's many characters. And um, and so I've taken stories from people I know or in my family or and, and I kind of uh, have taken liberties. So to kind of give you an idea of how I do that, my maternal grandmother's name is Ruby and my mother's middle name is May. So now I've created Ruby May, right? Mm -hmm. And another character in the book is Fanny June. So my step-grandmother was named Fanny, and my birth month is June. So there's Fanny June. So maybe Fanny June and I, I maybe I fancy that I, me and Fanny June are a little bit alike, and my mama and her mama were a little bit alike. And then those stories that kind of twine in and out. So just kind of give you an idea of how things are happening here. So Ruby May. My mama hates children and dogs, even her own. No matter that she makes this clear, announces it regular. Wherever she goes, there's a child or hound set to wallow her as if she smells of jelly beans or alpo. Manic, she will coo you penniless. Depressed, she'll peel the skin off your face with nary a whip of her curly head. Now, she says, I wanted to live seemly. I set out to be kind. Reaches for her Bible. She says Uncle Bub used to tickle her up under her chin and otherwise on whiskey nights. She says she and Fanny June would build forts with kitchen chairs and Grammy's star flower quilt, crawl deep inside, lure the cat with baloney, lie side by side, lock fingers in a pinky swear, hearts crossed. Hoped he'd die. That was Ruby May from A Place So Deep Inside America It Can't Be Seen. You want to do another one? 
Sure. Um, so I guess I need to talk about the grandmothers, how important our grandmothers are to us. And, uh, and so many of us have lost our grandmothers, you know, and with that goes so much information. And I think anytime we lose somebody, we remember all the things we wish we would have asked them, right? So I'm going to read as the twig is bent on page 20. Go ahead. Okay. As the twig is bent, honeysuckle spiked early this year. The dogwood leaved by only half. My grandmother would say these are signs of consequence. The significance long lost to me with many mountain ways. My red-handled shovel offers up a smooth white pebble I place on my tongue. Tasting of storm, of dusty teacups, a revelation between clenched teeth. Shoulders hunched, my body is a poem of rusty spine and thinning blood. Words piled a hundred apologies deep. Generations pass and still we toil. Scratch at scars, lose track of the path home. A downy woodpecker probes a sculpted trunk. Clouds swell, the rain stings. That was as the twig is bent from a place so deep inside America it can't be seen. The newest book from Carrie Gunter Seymour, Ohio Poet Laureate. Um, um, do you want to talk? I'm curious about... Um, how you started writing poetry? Because I, I read somewhere, and maybe it was a, um, a bio or a press release, that, that the poetry came to you when your son um, went to fight in, um, in the Middle East. And um, that, you, that it sort of saved you. Um, it was something to write. Um, it's something to do. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that? Why did you come to poetry? Yeah, I was mess when uh, my son deployed, especially the first time, uh, because the... Um, the uh, it was just it was it was early, it was Fallujah. It was terrible. Um, there were no uh, there was no email. Uh, if he was to call me, he had to wait in line for two, three, four hours sometimes to be able to call home, and it was often in the middle of the night because they're twelve hours and a little some different from us. Um, so I wasn't sleeping. I'd wake up every morning and wonder if he was even living, you know, because I wouldn't know till I didn't or did get a phone call. Um, so I started journaling. Um, and then someone said, you ought to write poetry because it'll help you focus in and maybe that would be more therapeutic for you to be able to do that instead of these ramblings, which are obviously making me more crazy, right? <laughs> <laughs> so I did that. And, um, and... What it did, this is going to sound kind of hokey, but it, what it did is it did make me focus in and think about every word I wrote. And I will tell you the very first ones were horrible. They really were. Um, but what it made me do is realize that you can't ask the Lord to save somebody's life and then not believe they're going to do it. I mean, faith is faith. If I was going to ask the Lord to save my son's life, then I had to believe he was going to do it, and I had to start behaving that way. And so it did save me in the sense that it just really made me think very deeply 
about what I was writing and why I was writing it and what the significance and importance was of every word I was placing on the page instead of these wild ramblings, which were literally just making me feel more wild. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's kind of the story. That's where it got started. Do you think of, um, since you mentioned the Lord, do you think of poems as prayers? That's one of the things I always think of poems might be as a kind of prayer to to the unknown or to, to God, if, you know, is that something you think of it? I think many of the prayers then were, and I think the prayers in my first little chat book are—I mean, the poems are are probably more prayers than um, than maybe some in this one. Although some of these, I think some of the ones in here could be considered prayer-like. Um, uh, yeah, yes, I think yes. Now that you mention it, I think I'm a prayer without even knowing it. Maybe. <laughs> well, I th I think so too. I just think that there's. You know, there's a, a, um, the mystery of the universe and you're sort of putting out, you're sort of trying to communicate with that void that doesn't speak back or something. There's some way that you're doing that, that that presence that is the world. Um, and, and, it, and it's hard to speak to in your own words, you know, and then poetry gives you your own words to speak to it. That's that's kind of one thing I've always felt when it comes to poetry. No, I agree with you. And I also feel like every time a poem is given to me, because that is how I feel. So there's that spirituality again. I feel like it's a miracle. I do. I don't mean to sound corny again, but I do. I'm so grateful for every poem that's given to me, um, even the bad ones, you know, because I just know if I go back to those in a few months or a year, it'll, you know, it'll probably turn out to be an okay poem. So I'm just grateful that I I could just take up poetry like that and it would come to me. I just think that's a miracle and a gift. You know, that's a gift from whoever, what, I don't mean to force the Lord on anyone, but whoever you believe in or whatever you believe in, to be given a gift such as that is to be able to put these words together on a page and then to have some people actually like them. Wow. I mean, that's, that's really something, you know, that's just something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, what was your, your process like for learning how to write poems? Because you, you said it started out as journal entries. Um, did you read certain poets? Did you take classes? What did you do to um, start crafting them into poems? A little bit of uh, both of those. I remember reading Triggering Town. Is that right? Am I saying that right? Yeah, Trig Triggering Town is one of my first books. Uh, and then just started reading lots of poets. Um, then I started trying to attend some workshops, um, and I think the pivot for me was when I, uh, as far as improvement goes, was when I started attending the Heinemann uh, week-long writers workshop in uh, Heinemann, Kentucky, which is at the Heinemann Settlement School, which is older than trees in that area. I mean, it's really awesome, you know, a place and. Um, and the kind of people that hang out there, I've studied under Rebecca Gale Howe, um, Silas House is there all the time. I don't know, these may be names you don't know because they're Appalachian. Oh, Rebecca Gale uh, Howe, we know. She, um, yeah, we had a yeah, poem sure. of hers in the Pushcart Anthology, and it was a f uh, the Reader's Choice Award winner for the Rattle Poetry Prize. Yeah. Uh, was uh, that my mother said I should never have children? Maybe. It was, yes, it was. Yes. Yeah, it's one of yes. my favorite poems. Yes. It's a wonderful yes. one, yeah. Yes, and she's a marvelous person, just just a marvelous person. And uh, I was had the the great fortune to study under her and um, and uh, and hang out with people. Like I can go through the whole list now if you want me to, real quick, to tell you the kind of people I've been able to hang out with. Uh, Marianne Worthington from Still the Journal. 
um, she published my very first poem. And to my mind, still, the journal is one of the finest Appalachian journals you will ever find. And it is an online journal, and it's free to read. And I know they want to try to keep it that way. So if you've got a little spare change to, to send their way, if you read and like what you read, I think that would be wonderful. And Marianne Worthington is an amazing poet herself. Um, there's Rita Quillen, uh, Pauletta Hansel out of Cincinnati, Ohio. She uh, is uh, the editor of Pine Mountain Sound and Gravel. I have some of these. Here's Pine Mountain Sound and Gravel. Huge book. Gives opportunity to so many Appalachian writers, not just poets, but um, um, essayists and storytellers and uh, songwriters. And there's even been a map in it a couple of times that people have drawn of, of the artists that live in Appalachia, and that's Pauletta Hansel. Um, she's the immediate, uh, immediate past poet laureate for Cincinnati, Ohio, and she uh, won the Weatherford Award for her writing. Yeah, we published um, her, too, just last year. Yes. And, and I was about to post yeah. it today, and then I posted your poem, and so I'm going to post it tomorrow as the, the last week's poem on, on Facebook and Twitter and stuff. But... um. But yeah, that I confess poem, which is one of the one of the most read poems of the year last year, if I remember right. Yeah, yeah, Pauletta. Yes, yeah, she's amazing. Again, an amazing woman, just an amazing woman. Um, Bianca X, uh, formerly Bianca Spriggs, who is one of our fabulous Afrolatian poets. Um, Michael Henson is a poet out of Cincinnati uh, doing some amazing writing. Robert Guype is actually um, a novelist, but his writing is so lyrical and so full of music that I think of it as this big, long prose poem. His writing is so amazing. Um, there's Linda Parsons and Stella Sue Lee, who you know. I do know and her. And dear <laughs> to me. And they're out of Nashville, you know, doing some amazing work. Um, Thomas Allen Holmes, excuse me, Thomas Allen Holmes, Richard Haig, Jane Waldrop, uh, Savannah Sippel out of Kentucky. She's one of our outstanding LGBTQ poets. Viv, uh, Val Neiman out of North Carolina. And last but not least, I've already talked about Rebecca Gail Howe, but Crystal Wilkinson. Oh, sweet Lord. You do want to read her work. It's just amazing. And both she and Rebecca have won uh, the United States Artist Fellowship. And if you don't know what that is, it's an amazing, prestigious award. And they are given $50,000 to do with, as they wish, to um, to just work on their poetry, which in Appalachia, that could be actually two salaries for an entire year. So um, we have, I, and I've only touched the surface. These are just some of the people that I know. There are so many, and I'm just, I'm just so excited for everyone who's listening tonight or may listen to this in the future to look up some of these poets as well. Oh, I forgot one more. This is the Anthology of Appalachian Writers. This is from um, Shepherd University, and Dr. Sylvia Sherbert. Sherbet is the um, editor of this. And again, like this particular volume uh, was dedicated to Crystal Wilkinson, but there's writing uh, from just uh, literally a couple hundred of, um, of Appalachian uh, writers. And there's also some art in here and some of my photographies in here. So I'll brag that up a little bit. Uh, but again, you can just get this from, uh, you know, Shepherd EDU. And you can order this beautiful book. And uh, again, you will laugh. You will cry. You will maybe change your mind about what you think about Appalachians once you read some of this work. Because it's not an easy life. It is, it is often a very hard life for Appalachians. Yeah, well, it's interesting hearing you list the names because there's a whole lot of, lot of poets that um, we've published in Rattle that I didn't know or think of as Appalachian poets. I don't, you know, I don't really look where they are and, and think of it that way usually. But So this is going to be really cool to do. Um, I should say before we go on with some more poems, if anybody has any questions, 
for uh, Carrie Gunter Seymour, um, please just leave them in the chat window and I'll pass them along either on YouTube or Facebook. I'm watching both. Um, we got, I got a good question already. We'll do that next. But um, do you want to read a couple more poems, Carrie? Sure, sure. Well, um, what I thought I might do is read a couple of the poems that have some music in it, because I cannot even emphasize enough how important music is to us. And um, I'll tell you what, families can be feuding, and, uh, you know, lovers can be quarreling, but the fiddle comes out, the banjo, the guitar, and everybody's going to church right that minute. You know what I mean? I mean, everybody's getting along and tapping their feet, and... um, it's a beautiful thing, and I do think music does heal us, and it's another spiritual experience, and it's another form of prayer, I think. Um, so anyway, I wrote this poem uh, for my daddy, and um, he was a big old Hank Williams fan, and I uh, was watching uh, the Ken Burns documentary on country music, and when it came to the Hillbilly Shakespeare, which is Hank Williams, I... Um, it was very emotional for me, and this poem just came. It's one of those ones where you write it down, and the next day you tweak it a couple times, and it was done. And so I thought, I wonder if my daddy sent this to me. Anyway, <laughs> it's called Hank Williams' Last Ride. And also, there's a little story in here. There's uh, there's uh, historical information, and that often ends up in my poems, too. So it's on 30. I'm sorry, page 30. So Hank Williams' Last Ride. I knew all the words to move it on over before I could walk properly. Daddy loved Hank, and that was good enough for me. Move over, skinny dog, cause a fat dog's moving in. My toddler melodies hitting every trill and dip. Daddy strumming G, C, G, D. His foot a thumping tick hound, scratching fleas. He died hard, my daddy. Not like Hank, addicted to morphine and booze, but he was blue, and Hank knew the blues. Tonic tunes, Daddy called them. What might his life have been if he'd played honky-tonks instead of signing up for a front-row seat in the Pacific Ocean Theater, thick with Japs and dead brothers? Or better still, if he'd not come home with a metal plate in his head and coal being the only means to make a living wage in the mountains? What might Hank's life have been if his heart had not given out? If he'd never checked in at the Andrew Johnson Hotel and Charles Carr moved on over so my daddy could drive to Canton, not far from the foothills of the Appalachians where I sat singing all sass and twang as if somebody's life depended on it. Yeah, and that was Hank Williams' last ride from um, a place so deep inside America it can't be seen. Um, you've mentioned a few times sort of poems being channeled from somewhere. Um, um, what is your process like? Like how, how do you find that channel? Cause you know, most everybody watching this is a poet themselves and, and, um, wants to figure out how it works. Um, how does it work for you? Like, what do you do to, to get into that space where, where the poem is, is coming from somewhere else, which I think is a space that, that we all feel when, when we do it right. I have to wait for my poems. I can't sit down every morning and write. I can sit down every morning and and review poems and work on them and update them or, you know, revise them. But until the poem's ready to come, it, it just doesn't come to me. But I could be standing in the garden and all of a sudden it'll hit me. And I kind of have to run for a piece of paper or get up to my computer so that I can uh, can do it. Um, sometimes I have to put them on my phone, you know, 
Um, but that's how they come to me. They're just kind of like, here I am, <laughs> write me down. And it's not, I don't want to say that it's that comes to me that easy because it does not, believe me. But the, but the structure of it usually does. I have, uh, I'm going to quote Maggie Smith here. It has good bones until I, you know, until I get back in there to, to fix it up. But, but the idea of the poem comes to me pretty, you know, um, at least the start and the finish may be pretty, pretty clearly. And what comes in between, I have to allow I have to allow my uh, whatever that is to, to coax itself out, you know. Um, I do try to free write quite a bit just to sit down and free write with a pencil on a notebook about these things that are in my head. And that helps quite a bit too because lots of times if I can just get myself to free write like a half hour or 35, 40 minutes and I go back, I find a lot of what the poem is right in there. I just have to excavate it out, mm-hmm. you know. And so that's kind of my process. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I never, you know, Good Bones, if nobody knows that poem by uh, Maggie Smith, um, it's about how life has good bones and we can, you know, that we can build around as if we're looking at a piece of real estate. It has it has stuff to work with. I never thought of it, though, as a, as a poem about writing, but it works so well. I, that never occurred to it me. Does. It really does. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, really quick, Vicky Miko asks if you, um, if you write songs, too. Do you write song lyrics since you... I have written song lyrics, and I love to sing. I love to sing. Um, when I was younger, I wrote a lot of song lyrics. I haven't recently. Um, I'm not even sure why. I guess because the poetry over just came upon me. You know, it sounds it's like a laying of hands. You know, poetry laid its hands on me, and I've got to do that now until something else lays its hands on me. You know, um, and again, I feel so blessed and. Um, uh, I guess, too, I haven't been as active in the church as I was as a young person, and there was much, much more singing going on in my life at that time than there is now. I have to kind of create my own singing now. Mm-hmm. But I have written some lyrics, yeah. yes. Well, I'm so glad that poetry's laid its hands on you. That's a great way to put it, too. <laughs> um, Tucker Pavlak uh, says, can you tell us something about forgiveness and letting go of attachment? Oh, boy, can I. <laughs> I wonder if I should read some poems about that. Um, that kind of gets back to the discussion I was having about finding my faith. Mm-hmm. Um, when you have a loved one in harm's way for as long and as many times as I did, you have to start forgiving people. You know, you can't blame his lieutenant and you can't blame his captain and you can't, you know, you can blame the president. I'm okay with that. Um <laughs> Um, but you, you, uh, you know, you, you just have to find a way, and 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 by doing that, you become a better person. I think you just become a better human being. And I'll give another example. My mother is one of those who died in the nursing home recently, mm-hmm. and um, I was only allowed in to see her for not a very long time before she passed, and I ac- actually missed her passing because they would not let me back in. And I could have been really mad. And I could have thrown a fit, and I could have tried to sue somebody. And um, what I did is uh, we, we were under orders. The people were trying to keep everybody there safe, including my mother, who did not con- contract. Nobody there has had COVID-19. And I found gratitude in the care they had given her all the years she'd been there and all the care they had given me while I came there and spent time with them. And they treated me like family. And I started thinking about all that, and, and then I was able to 
to let go of all the nastiness of that and it and it, and so I could still make it a beautiful passing. Mm-hmm. You know, I could still make that. I could still find the beauty in all of that. And I could let go of that and not have it torture me for the rest of my life. Because that there's no service. There's no purpose in that. So that's how I try to find a, a way to let go. And I have written those into my poems. As you know, I wrote one about my mother being in the nursing home. I had shared that on the open mic, you know. And lo and behold, it was only a few weeks later mm-hmm. that that um you know she passed but um i guess because i've gotten older and i guess because i found that faith when my son was deployed it's the most amazing thing and i'm you know i just wish that for everybody and i'm not saying i'm born again don't get me (laughs) wrong i'm not trying to baptize y'all i'm just saying that having having a, a a way to find the goodness in even mm-hmm. the worst situation it sounds like such a Pollyanna thing to say, but it really is. We spend way too much time on things that we are never going to bring any change to or conclusion. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a whole lot of better things to to exert your energy on that we can bring change to, you yeah. know. And we've got a, we've got a lot of work ahead of us right now on change that needs to happen. So I hope that answers the question. I think it does. And, um, you know, talking about just religious faith, uh, the one thing that I think, um, I think we're really lacking maybe is just the idea of that we're all sinners struggling. Um, It's something that we've Mm -hmm. sort of lost. Um, I'm not a really religious person. I love the way that thinking of the world that way and thinking of people as struggling through moral problems um, and trying to find the right path and failing. But it, it allows you to have... Um, empathy and 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 find solace um, with people a lot more than if you think that we're all um, um, you know that we're that some of us can be perfect you know like just the idea that we can right. be morally pure is um, is a problem I think that that we think that way rather than thinking that we're all struggling. Exactly, and I try to think about that when I go to the grocery store and someone treats me real mean or gets in front of me or whatever. I just try to think, oh man, I wonder if she had trouble getting her kids ready yeah, for school yeah. this morning, or maybe she's got a sick child at home and she's trying to get there quick. You know, those kind of things. You know, just to, mm-hmm. and maybe I'm just a fool, <laughs> and that's okay too. I don't care if I am because I'm a happy one. <laughs> yeah, it, it makes it make, just makes you feel better about the world to think of it that way, even though it's a it's such a negative concept, the concept of everybody being a sinner but the actual like pragmatic result of that is that you can forgive so much more easily I mean, you mentioned the grocery store and that right now the mask thing between like do we wear a mask and i just have such sort of anger at the people who don't you know when when um uh, you know there, there's people that are vulnerable walking around next to them and 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 um but then realizing that people are trying to you know struggle through and do the right thing like they're trying to do the right thing too even though i think it's the wrong thing and they think i'm doing the wrong thing and i'm uh, thinking that way just makes it much more of a peaceful experience confronting people at the grocery store it, it really does. does it does and i think confrontation is not all it's chalked up to be you know because if you're going to confront then you have to be willing to concede or you don't come to you know you don't come to consensus so there's no sense confronting someone if you're not willing to work with them you know mm-hmm. to compromise in some way and if you're setting out to to put somebody down for not wearing a mask and you're not going to budge then there's really no sense to confront because mm-hmm. there's not going to be any peaceful solution to that yeah yeah you know so uh, well you mentioned you had some poems about this and about you know, forgiveness or, or I can't remember how he put it, but um, do you want to, do you want to share a poem or two in that vein? 
Um, well, what I might share is um, the anchor poem from uh, the chapbook, oh, sure. which I think kind of speaks to all of all that we've been talking about tonight, maybe. Um, so I'd like to first say that any of my poems that I read from uh, this chapbook, this is page three. Mm -hmm. um, I always send out to all who have served, are serving, and to their families. Um, but this is a time when I will mention that food is very important to Appalachians. We take great pride in our food. We have secret recipes that we tell no one. They stay in the family. Um, for us, sharing food uh, is, it, it unites us. It's like, uh, it's like a higher power for us uh, because I think what it is is it's just such a family thing to do to share food, even with strangers. You know, um, it's there's kind of a spiritualness about that. So, um, so I'll leave it at that, and I'll I'll just read this poem. It's called "Serving." Remember that time your dog died, and I didn't tell you for months because you had deployed, and George Bush was shouting, "Bring it on!" and we were all thinking Korea was fixing to blow. But when I emailed to say we were headed for West Virginia, you fired back, "Mom, where's Annie?" And I had to say she was hit by a car. I sent brownies loaded with black walnuts from the old home place. Or when you called me from Iraq asking me to talk to people about donating shoes and I told you it was hopeless because of the tsunami. Everyone was already donating and you said hell with that. And your unit threw in their paychecks and bought all those families just outside Fallujah new shoes off the internet. I made 200 popcorn balls wrapped in wax paper. Or that February you came home for R&R &R so sad and sick. I baked your favorite meatloaf and you said you couldn't possibly but I gave you dough eyes so you ate and threw up all night long into the next day saying over and over sweet Jesus please make it stop. And I knew you weren't talking about the meatloaf. Or the day after Sergeant Crabtree went to Vegas and blew his head off in the hotel bathroom while here at home your best friend got arrested for selling narcotics and you said neither one of them needed to, maybe wouldn't have if you'd been there. So I shipped molasses cookies thick with Crisco frosting all the way to Kandahar. Or the afternoon your farm boy fingers tried to clamp the artery on that precious baby girl near the valley of Argonne Daub while her father screamed for Allah and blood soaked your uniform when you hugged her to you as she passed. I drenched that fruitcake and brandy for three days. But mostly... It was the night your daughter was born and we locked eyes across the birthing room and I thought to myself, skillet fried chicken with candied sweet potatoes, fried okra, lima beans with bacon, cornbread and Aunt Margaret's hot fudge cake. We used the good dishes and Grandpa Orr said the blessing. When Johnny comes marching home again, hurrah, hurrah. We'll give him a hearty welcome then. Hurrah! Hurrah! The men will cheer. The boys will shout. The ladies, they will all turn out. And we'll all feel gay when 
Johnny comes marching home. Oh, that was beautiful. Thanks so much. That was serving the title poem from uh, Carrie Gunter Seymour's uh, first chapbook. Or I don't know if it's your first chapbook, but it's... It is my first, yeah, yes. serving here. Um, I'm so glad you read that. That was one of my favorite poems in the book, that, that meatloaf, that, that whole stanza was so touching in particular. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, beautiful singing, too. Thanks for that. <laughs> Thank you. Um, we did have a request. I don't know if you have, um, I didn't see it in the book, but maybe I just missed it. The Trouble with Apples? I could bring it up you, and read yeah, it if yeah, you'd like Yeah, someone requested to. that. Uh, Daniel, Daniel okay. Mask requested that, so. Just give me one minute yeah. to get my website up here, and I, it's right on my website. Um, and that is Carrie Gunter Seymour, poet.com. Yes. <laughs> Okay, here we go. Uh-oh. Yeah, there it is. Sometimes, I, I told you, Tim, our internet gets a little funky <laughs> sometimes. Okay. This is the trouble with apples. We might should blame Eve or that rascal Newton. But I say it was Gessler, bastard. Though who could have known what would come of his vengeance? Tells defiance. His son's famous stance. This perfectly delicious one, grievously balanced, shadow-shaped, cloud guts pithy and sweet, spewed, insides out, beyond freckled skin, shards and debris making slick work of that steel, that lead, spinning fast and true. That silly boys would forever set one to head, aim whatever egged on by the romance of muscle and musician, munitions, killing fruit, then birds, then animals, then each other. Uh, another good one. Thanks for sharing that. And thanks for the, the, uh, the request, uh, Daniel Musk. I appreciate that. Um, yes. There was another question that was interesting. Uh, let me see if I can find it again. Uh, it was, again, it was Tucker Pavlak. Um, and he says, or he says, uh, she will understand. How do we always find find each other? Oh, he's a veteran. Ah. He's a, oh, yeah. I don't know. I don't know how that happens, but it happens to me over and over and over. And I'm really glad I found you, and you found me. I'm really glad of that. Um, I hope you'll reach out to me. Um, I'm, I'm, I, I wish I knew the answer to that, except that I think that we all have that that hole in us that. It's so trying to be filled, um, and the best way to do that is with each other, I guess. The more the more we talk about it, the more we heal, maybe. Um, so I think that's another one of those spiritual things that um, maybe whoever you believe in, the universe, the Lord, whoever, that um, that we're allowed to find each other for that very reason. Mm -hmm. So thank you for that question, and thank you for, I hope I haven't, Hope I haven't misstepped by uh, making that proclamation, uh, but but I am really glad that we have found each other. <laughs> well, I'm glad to. Um, he he. Um, I'll copy this and then maybe delete. He, I think he gave his phone number. Um, I'll copy this and put it in a file and then I'll delete it so nobody else thank can see you. his phone number. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask you about was this uh, poem that you published that that went viral and it and it had something to do with a, a food bank. Um, do you, do you, the story, what's the story with that? 
Okay, so um, Joe Burrow is our boy. He is our man. You know, he's the Heisman Trophy winner. Do you know that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did you know that about him? Okay, I wasn't sure. <laughs> no, I, I, mean, I am a, I'm a football fan, so yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, so, um, so you know, this, this young man just is a gorgeous, wonderful human being. There's just no other way around it, and he's super talented. Um, but he's also a great, you know, academic. And, um, and when he got up on that stage and made, made his uh, acceptance speech, he mentioned that there were a whole lot of kids in Athens County who were doing without and, and that he felt so grateful and that he, um, that he always thought about them, you know, as he, as he made his way through life. Um, a friend of his put up a Facebook uh, GoFundMe sort of Facebook uh, ask and people started donating and uh, they were near the end of it and the donations had kind of quit and I thought to myself okay I'm in the last month of my poet laureateship here in Athens Ohio I guess or Athens County I said and I said I guess I wouldn't be much of a poet laureate if I didn't write a poem about Joe Burrow but I don't watch football and I don't know anything about Joe Burrow football that way you know I don't know you know I know he's the quarterback um, but anyway, I, um, I, I did write a poem from my heart because I have been very poor. And I knew I know what it's like to be poor. And I simply wrote a poem about what it's like to be poor and what it's like for children to be poor. And, um, and I just sent it to my local newspaper. And we put it up. And people just went nuts over it and, um, and started sending in money. To finish up the fundraiser, and half a million dollars was collected for a, for our food pantry in you know Athens County, Ohio. It's just just another one of those miracles. So the title is Go Joe, but it's written in you know the, the Louisiana French because you know that's where he was playing as LSU. So the title is Go Joe. Okay, until you fed your kids Kraft mac and cheese from the markdown bin at the dollar store for the sixth time in two weeks. Made with water instead of milk. Worried sick about what's happening to their insides, a dented can of carrots past the expiration date of luxury. Until you've worked two jobs and still can't climb above the food stamp line, never mind proper heating or running water. And you put your six-year-old to bed hungry again, wondering if there's any way you can take on a third job and still see your kids. Until your daughter asks to pack her lunch because she's made fun of for being subsidized. So in desperation, you take time off work to stand in the food pantry line, in the cold, children in tow, only to be informed it was a tough week for the pantry, too. Until you've put your children on the school bus dressed in mended clothes from the new-to-you, sized for children meant to be more filled out, and they're labeled white trash and no amount of scrubbing can remove that stain. And dreams of college remain just that. Until a boy from your neighborhood picks up a football and throws it so far thousands of people notice and thousands more will eat high on the hog because the proof of a person lies in their honor and glory rests not in the moment but extends itself in supplication. Oh, that was wonderful. Thanks so much for sharing that. I'm glad we could. Um, it's amazing when a poem 
you know, does something meaningful in the world, which is a weird thing to say, but, but, um, you know, to, to work on a, on a mass level rather than the one-on-one level that poetry usually operates on is, is really cool to see anytime it does. So, um, that's a really cool story. Thank you. <laughs> I just feel like I'm just happen to be in the right place at the right time. I really do. Cause you know, as Appalachians, we're taught not to, not to be brigady because every time you get lifted up, there's thousands of other people who work just as hard as you or maybe maybe harder than you that are not being lifted up and you just need to remember that so you don't just you don't want to you just don't want to go there you know you just want to keep your feet right on the ground mm-hmm. yeah yeah well, that's wonderful thanks thanks Gary we have maybe we have time for one last poem to close it out is there one you wanted to end okay. on uh, there is uh, it's on page 18 okay the weeds in this garden. Of a, a place so deep? Okay. Yes, a place so deep. Okay. I'm so sorry. The weeds in this garden. Long ago, I built a self outside myself. I ate what my family ate, answered to my name. But when they said, let us pray, I kept my eyes open. There is a price to be paid for resistance. Whatever you call me, I have called myself worse. Invented words made up of letters from my own name. Now the backs of my hands, all bone and strain, I think cannot be mine. Who hasn't killed herself at least once, only to grow into someone needier? Who hasn't bent with her wounds to a mutinous patch, weeds shooting up like false rhubarb, every wisp, stem, and sodden pith a testament? Who hasn't scratched at the question of what it means to be here? Uh, and that was The Weeds in This Garden, another poem uh, from A Place So Deep Inside America It Can't Be Seen. Um, Carrie, thanks so much. This has just been wonderful. I love your poems, um, and, and I love hearing you read them, too. Thanks so much for joining thank us and for, and for sharing your work. Thank you for having me, Tim, and thank you so much for creating uh, opportunity for Appalachians to submit their work to Rattle. I just think that's a marvelous gift you are giving us, and I thank you for that. Well, it's really my pleasure. I can't wait to read all the submissions that come in. So, so thank you, Carrie, and I have to talk to you more about it soon. Okay. Bye. Yeah. Have a good night. Good night. All right. Bye. Yeah, that was Carrie Gunter Seymour. Um, you can find more of her work, of course, at uh, Carrie Gunter Seymour poet.com um, her newest book which just came out is a place so deep inside America it can't be seen from um, let's see the back here um, it is a she- Sheila Nagig editions I never know how to say that Sheila Nagig I think um, and find it at Carrie Gunter Seymour poet.com her, her other book here is serving um, about being a mother of a son deployed in the, in the Middle East um, two just wonderful books by Carrie Gunter Seymour. Um, I'm so glad you could join us today and so glad that you could too. Um, really moving poems. I really appreciated those. Now, um, we're going to move on to our open mic portion of the show. I'm not sure how many we'll have. Let's see, because I forgot to um, share the prompt last week. I did put it in the notes, so we'll see how many people actually um, um, read the notes. But last week's prompt um, was, let me put this on screen for everybody. Um, here we go. It was write a poem based on a famous event that occurred in the year of your birth. Uh, write a poem based on a famous event that occurred in the year of your birth. 
And that was the prompt for this week. We have a prompt every week and then an open mic for prompt poems as a way to encourage people to write poems because that's, um, that's one of the main things we want to do. We think writing poems is a magical, wonderful thing, and uh, we want as many people to write poems as possible. Um, so if you want to call in, um, you, can, you can call... Oops, let me get rid of Carrie. Um, send your poem to open mic, all one word, at rattle.com. Uh, and then you can send me a chat message over Skype, Rattle Poetry, all one word, or give me a call at 818-850-7727. That's 818-850-7727. Let it ring a few times, um, and then hang up, and I will call you back when the time is right. So far, we have like three or four people who have poems. Um, another, Michelle Parks is calling in right now, so we have her up, ready to go. Um, now, here was Megan's poem. Um, let me show this. This was Megan's poem. I didn't get to do a poem this week. I just I just ran out of time. This is the one week. Uh, every year, every uh, every season, there's a week that's just too crazy for me trying to put the next issue and chapbook together, uh, which I did. I just sent it to our proofreaders at the post office um, an hour before showtime. So we're done with that, and we're ready to go for the fall issue and for the next chapbook. Um, but I got home too late to write a poem. So I didn't write one, but here is Megan's. Um, I, I'll tell you what I was going to write about. I was going to write about uh, Mount St. Helens erupting because um, that happened while I was being born, but I didn't get to it. Um, but Megan was born in 1984, and this is her poem. San Ysidro, 1984. There's an epigram. Um, the San Ysidro McDonald's massacre was an act of mass murder which occurred at a McDonald's restaurant um, in the San Ysidro neighborhood of San Diego, California, on July 18th, 1984. My mother was eight months pregnant with me. I wonder if she was eating a hamburger when she found out. The little disc-like ones, the same kind I would eat years later on one of those candy red stools, my little legs swinging. This was long before I had ever seen security footage of a high school cafeteria on an ordinary April day. And after we found out, my friends and I took my $800 car to where else? Because it was cheap and those hamburgers, indestructible as frisbees, hit the spot. This was still before I watched my oldest child, then two twirl around the room while the TV poured out some mythical horror that we all thought would put an end to all this. Surely the slaughter of first graders would put an end to this all. Surely we could stop punctuating our lives with dates of gunfire and tearful press conferences. But it didn't, and we couldn't. And maybe that's why it was the first place I took my daughter afterward, why I placed her on a stool, bought her a Happy Meal, handed her the little toy, bright, plastic, indestructible. So that is Megan's poem. Again, she's a very good poet, so she just writes a good poem every week. San Ysidro, 1984, by Megan Green. Um... That was her poem for the week. I didn't know about that. Um, and also, also, I didn't know about that event from 1984. I also didn't know that she took our daughter to um, uh, to McDonald's after, um, um, what is it, the school shooting in um, wherever that was, Connecticut. Let's see who would like to go on the open mic now. Um, we have Brent Stoffer. Let's call Brent up. Hey, Brent. How are you doing tonight? 
Oh, you, I can't hear you. It's the same thing that happened last time. Um, let's see, I'll try to call you back in a little bit. We'll, we'll go to the next one down, and we'll call Brent back in just a minute. That, that happened last time. I'm not sure what it was, but he fixed it last time. Um, let us do... Uh, let's go to Michelle Parks. Um, oh. Hey, Michelle, how are you doing tonight? Good, good. How are you? I'm doing great. Um, thanks so much for joining us. As always, it's always nice to see you. Um, hang on, I want to pull you in. So, how you doing? I, I'm I'm Gouda. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, what did you what did you write about for the prompt? I, I'm trying to bring it up. I've had it up on my phone apparently so long that it timed out. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, here it is. Here it is. Okay. So, I wrote about Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Mm -hmm. Always hard to say his last name. Um, and Tucker in the chat was talking about, so glad you are, so glad you are, so glad you are. Tucker and I met randomly in Pittsburgh a year ago for once and ha has been my friend ever since. Mm -hmm. And he is a beautiful person. Um, but when I was 13 or 14, I was really into Vonnegut. Mm -hmm. And Vonnegut promoted Solzhenitsyn. So... I was reading really heavy, dense work, but it was so worthwhile. Um, and in my birth year, 1974, um, his, his citizenship from the Soviet Union was revoked after he spent time in the gulags mm -hmm. um, because of his controversial writing. Um, I do feel I need to preface the poem with the definition, Vujade. Uh, Vujade is something you've never experienced before that you kind of wake up to like, wow, this is different. Hmm. I've never heard that before. Interesting. Yeah, I love it. It's the it opposite is. of deja vu. Yeah, yeah. It's I don't know why it never occurred yeah, to me that there would be an opposite, but there is. <laughs> it's really, really weird. And I, I've never been able to fit it into a point before, but it felt right. So... I may still edit, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, it's just called Solzhenitsyn. You tasted eyes, saw the depths of autonom auton autonomy in a dystopian reality of a blind gulag. Is this Fujade? I cannot live on sight alone, though taste tickles throat. I am choking. I taste eyes that have seen madness. I become bitter. Meat and bone, meat and bone, I am designed to fail. Meat and bone, unnourished, slurped by masses, I am hungry still. Wonderful. That was uh, Solzhenitsyn by um, uh, Michelle Parks. Thanks so much, Michelle. That was a wonderful poem, and, and I, I learned a new word, which I always love to do. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. I appreciate yeah, it. Thank you. Have a good night. You too. Okay. Um, Let's try. Let's go back to Brent and see if Brent fixed his uh, microphone issue. And if anybody has any microphone problems ever, you, you know that I do every episode where I mute myself and forget. So, um, Brent, are you there? Can you hear me this time? Or can we hear you this time? Yeah. Ah, perfect. Okay. Yeah. We're back. I am We're back. here. <laughs> no, I'm here. I'm here. I promise. Okay, cool. I promise I'm here. <laughs> I'm right here. We hear you. We hear you. Hold on. We see you. I think you flipped your, your camera. You? I see, like, the back of your... See me. 
There you go. Okay, how's it? That's perfect. I am so sorry <laughs> that this keeps happening. No, it's no but problem. I, as you know, as I was just saying before I called you, um, I mess up the microphone every single episode at some point. It's like a, it should be a drinking game okay. or something. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so I can't, I can't get mad at anybody for messing up the microphone. Um, so, so what do you have for us? That, what, what did you write in the year of your birth? Well, okay, I actually spent a lot of time looking at things that happened in 1966. And uh, I was trying to find something that spoke to me, that made me want to write something. Uh, and uh, when I was a kid, I, I read a book by Richard Brodigan called The Abortion in Historical Romance, 1966. Uh, and I looked up when it was published, and it wasn't published till 71. But I found out that Brodigan went to Tijuana, Mexico to do research on this book in 1966. Hmm. And so it's not technically a famous thing that happened in 1966, but it is a thing that happened in 1966, <laughs> and I really wanted to write about That's it. That's awesome. I think that so, counts. I think that counts. Uh, okay, great. Okay, let's hear it. Okay. Richard Brodigan researches the abortion in historical romance, 1966. The slender author, famous mustache in tow, mid-March of 66, slouched south to haunt the alleys of Tijuana, Mexico. The hollow of the heel of his boot contained zero heroin, though in his wrinkled brain festered the germ of a glorious operation. You could say his novel was in the fetal stage. Vast shafts of sunlight lay across withered doorways. Dogs thin as ghosts dove in and out of the restless dust. Very nice. That was Richard Brodigan researches uh, the abortion and historical romance. I, I'm not familiar with that book. What is it about that book? Like, what is it about, and what it, what does it move you so much about it? Well, it uh, well the, the the first most superficial thing is that it's got the year of my birth in it, <laughs> and uh, yeah, but it's um, it came. It came out, I think, directly after Drop Fishing in America. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it, it's about a guy who works in a library. And in the library, um, the only books in the library are books that are unpublished, brought in by people who wrote them. Mm. And then he, he, he takes them and puts them where he thinks they ought to be. In a, in a, so they have to be unpublished, though. And so it's a place for all these unread, unloved manuscripts to be. Interesting. Uh, and it's funny. There, there even there is a real life Brodigan library at a college somewhere, hmm. um, with about uh, somewhere over three hundred manuscripts or something that that people have submitted that they've written and uh, couldn't find a home. Oh wow! That's, elsewhere. Huh. That's really interesting. Yeah. yeah. And, and just generally, as a as a as a teenager, reading Brodigan really stoked my uh, imagination and uh, gave me uh, uh, that feeling of like I want to do that. Yeah, that's yeah. what I want to do. I want to I want to make that feeling in people. That's you know. Very cool. Well, thanks uh, for that recommendation. I have to check that out. That is uh, the Abortion and Historical Romance, nineteen sixty six, by Richard Brodigan. Uh, yeah, thanks for yeah. sharing that. Yeah, appreciate it, Brent. Thank you so much, Dan. Yeah, have a good appreciate one. It. Bye. All right, you too. Bye. Okay. Yeah, that was Brent Stauffer with his prompt poem. Um, let's see. Let's try Angela Gartner, see if she 
We have women in the city, in a city. Thank you so much. Oh. <laughs> yeah, it's always tough to uh, to do the two things so quick. Um, so how are you doing tonight, Angela? Good, real good. I'm uh, we found like this enormous rat in our garage, so I'm I'm, I'm thinking he there's a poem somewhere in that. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm always worried. We um we got um dog food from Chewy. And they're, they're studying, like, way more than, like, we, we imagined that we would need a lot more than we do. We have this, like, piles of dog food in bags and boxes. I'm so scared. We have nowhere else to put it because we, we're in California. There's no basement. There's no storage anywhere else. So I'm terrified of, of finding a whole bunch of rats eating the dog food. So I, I feel you. <laughs> yeah. And it was, he, luckily, he was, he passed away, you know, just <laughs> too nicely passed yeah. away. I don't know. Hopefully, heat stroke. I don't know. Anyway, um, my, just to let, um, it's, I, I didn't, I wrote this today, so hopefully it was okay. Because uh-huh. uh, I saw the prompt, I'm like, oh, I, I can do that. Um, it's about, like, um, my, I was born in 1977, and in May in 1977, so I'm, I'm always, and that's the summer in New York where it had the blackouts oh, yeah. and the so I wrote this as a perspective of a woman, a woman in it in the city during that time, and her feelings about all that, and and kind of intertwine some of the history and the and the um, of the blackouts and some other things. So I I wrote this today, so we'll see. So <laughs> okay. Oh, oh yeah, okay. go ahead. Oh, <laughs> okay. And then I, by the way, I did this, um, it's, it's the acoustic form. I wanted to, I'm trying to like learn more poetry forms. And so like, if you, if you, the first, the first letter of each of this is like you, um, it's, it's, um, summer of a killer and it's like the first letter of that. Mm -hmm. So, so I try to do something different. Okay. Should I go out? or stay to see another day? Under the lamps on the New York City streets, a man with ill intentions might be lurking for me. My long brown wispy hair blows around in the fan's wind. Electricity flickers as the summer's lightning storm begins. Reggie Jackson is on deck and swinging his bat, waiting to get in. Ominous feelings erupt in my being as a loud pop is heard. Far away from my apartment window, disco music is on the radio. A killer. He's somewhere. He's got a 44. Women, like me, are terror-stricken. Keep indoors. Double bolt your life. And don't walk alone at night. I look behind me without thinking, wondering if I should dye my locks blonde. Lights go out and the darkness trickles through the neighborhood well before dawn. Lovers kiss in a car. They didn't see the killer behind the door. Emotions rise. A city's filled with unrest as people feel weary from the dry, laden heat. Revolver is recovered from the son of Sam, who is arrested, and I can finally sleep. Ah, thanks for sharing that. That was Women, Women in a City by Angela Gartner. Yeah, thanks for that. That was one crazy summer, wasn't it? I was born in that. <laughs> I mean, I was a baby. I mean, I, 
I, you know, we've lived in Ohio, and thank you for bringing on Carrie. She is, she was amazing tonight. She was, yeah. But, um, yeah. It's nice to hear um, a fellow Ohioan. Um, but, you know, I, I've always been fascinated with New York City, and I was supposed to go there and write, and, and I was supposed to be a secretary and write my novel, but that never happened, so. Well, you became a journalist. <laughs> I know that now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, thanks so much for sharing that, and, and joining us again, Angela. Thank you. Have a great night. Okay. Um, we have one more person to do, I think. Let's see. We have a, nine eight se- a 978 number. We'll call. This will be the last one for tonight. Then I have to put the kids to bed. Um, here we go. Let's see who this is. Um, there's several different options. A few people sent poems but haven't called in. Let me see who this could be. The phone is ringing. Hey, this is Tim with Rattle. Did you want to share a poem? Hi, yeah. This is uh, Brenda Komarnski. Ah, hey, Brenda. How are you doing tonight? Oh, good. Good. Oh, so I have your poem here. It is um, The Year I Was Born, appropriately titled. Born. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> is there anything you want to say about it before you read it? Um, look, I had fun figuring out what all happened when I was born. So <laughs> I was born in 1971, and I found out a few facts that I didn't know. So, and... Um, is yeah. there is there a website you went to or anything that you can to find? I that just stuff? I googled <laughs> what happened nineteen seventy one. You know, <laughs> so uh, let me pull um, up. I'm gonna um, hang on just one second while I put it up for everybody. Okay, we're we're good to go. Okay, you ready? Um, yeah. The year I was born. The year I was born, Walt Disney World opened. I went just before this pandemic, a lifetime ago. The memory is too good to be real. The year I was born, women in Switzerland and 18-year-olds in the USA were allowed to vote. I just reminded my neighbor's son to go and register. Vote, because our lives depend on it. Awesome. Thanks so much. That was The Year I Was Born by Brenda Kamerinsky. Thanks so much yeah. for sharing that, Brenda. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so you were just Thanks. at Disneyland <laughs> or Disney World? Uh, yeah, and, and Disney World, Disney World in Florida. And actually, um, my neighbor's son, um, it was a, it was a school trip. Oh yeah. Um, the orchestra competed, and and he's he's in the orchestra, and so I was one of the chaperones. And yeah, and now he's graduated and just turned eighteen. So I'm mm-hmm. like, yeah. Well, it's <laughs> so, nice to have one last hurrah while we can still do, do stuff like that. Yeah, I guess. exactly. Yeah. Before everything yeah. closed. Exactly. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for sharing that poem, Brenda, and um, have a great night. All right. You too. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay. Well, that is the show for tonight. Thanks, everybody, for uh, joining us and sharing your poems. And um, I'm not going to forget to do the prompt this week. Uh, the prompt for next week is write a poem in the style of teaching someone how to do something. Write a poem in the style of, how, of teaching someone how to do something. That is next week's prompt. Um, as always, uh, write your prompt and then um, send it to that address on screen, openmic at rattle.com. Um, and then you can call in over Skype or the phone, 818-850-7727, and um, uh, read it for us. So um, once again, the prompt is write a poem in the style of teaching someone how to do something. So a, uh, a lesson poem. And uh, that's your prompt for this week. Now, next week's guest on the Rattlecast is going to be uh, Tom C. Hunley. Um, 
his new book, you can't really read it on the screen, it's Here Lies, uh, poems by Tom C. Hunley. And, and the poems, I think, I haven't read it yet, but I've read a bunch of these poems. It's, um, they're all Here Lies, they're all sort of self-obituaries or something. They're really interesting poems. He's one of my favorite poets. He's the uh, editor of Steel Toe Books. Um, uh, we've been publishing for a long time. Um, should be really fun to talk to him and uh, share some of his great poems. So that is next Tuesday, July 14th at 9 p.m. Eastern. Tom C. Hunley. So join us then, and, and don't forget to do your prompt poem. So I will see you then. Hope you have a great week, and um, talk to you soon. Good night.